0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. As you could probably tell by the sound of Revelation 21 and 22, that the whole scene John presents is really the final Exodus. Uh, We've been looking at Exodus old and new glimpses in the Old Testament, but now we come full circle to what will that final deliverance uh, and exodus in Jesus Christ look like. And so in Revelation 21 and 22, John paints a very vivid picture for us of, of what is the new heaven and the new earth. And he does it in a way that takes us first from outside the city, like seeing the city of God descend, and then takes us right into the very inside of the city into, we might say, the very throne room of God uh, to see all that's taking place there. Uh, and so what you're going to find is that in these two chapters, there are lots of Old Testament allusions and references. In other words, that we begin our study on the Exodus Old and New in Genesis 1. And in fact, John will take us back through many of the things we've looked at in our study taking us all the way back eventually to getting back to the garden uh, where there is perfect fellowship and communion with god Uh, And so if you have your bibles look with me at revelation 21 and we're going to go through a couple of these verses to highlight how they're connected to the old testament because we've established the fact that this thread runs through the entire scriptures, uh, that it's it's foreshadowed in different glimpses in the Old Testament, and here it's brought to complete fulfillment. And so our first point is simply that the final Exodus is the completion of God's promises. The final Exodus is the completion of God's promises. And so you notice in Revelation 21, verses one and two, Um, John writes here of this vision he receives, and he says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And and just to pause on that word new there, designates something completely new in nature. Not, Not just another heaven or another earth, but one that is completely transformed and changed in nature. One that, as you read the description, is very different from this present earth and this present heaven, but you see he also goes on and says that the new heaven and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now this phrase passed away is is almost the equivalent of the term exodus because it means to depart or to leave and so there is a subtle transition here with language familiar to the old testament, that's making its way to remind us of a completion of God's promises. So the first heaven and earth have exited. They have departed and they've been replaced with something much better. But you see also in verse one, it mentions, and there will there was no longer any sea. That's a very interesting concept. And one of the challenges in Revelation. 21 and 22, is reading it and and discerning, is it giving us physical descriptions? Are these descriptions more figurative and symbolic of of other states or conditions in this new exodus? And so this phrase, there's no longer any sea, it could be referenced to a physical geographical change. Um, Some have postulated that When you think of the sea now and areas of water, which cover, I think it's 70% of the earth, that they also serve to often divide land. And that in this new kingdom, there will be no divisions because all are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So it's possible there is a geographical, physical implication to this. But it's also true that in the scriptures, the word sea can, can also be translated at times and is a picture of evil or even used in reference to evil rulers in history. So there are, there are accounts of kind of Pharaoh being described almost as a dragon, uh, something out of the sea. And in Revelation 12, you have the beast who stands uh, over the sea and that now there'll be no more evil. No more beast, no more Satan in the new heaven, and the new earth. Either way you read it, it's pointing to a final completion of God's promises to to produce and bring about a radically new world that does not bear uh, the consequences of sin. But then notice as well as you look further into verse 2 of Revelation 12, Uh, 21. Uh, It speaks of the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, uh, being prepared as a bride. And and that's not just a New Testament depiction of of the church being adorned, uh, prepared throughout the centuries by God's plan of redemption for completion. Uh, But I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 61.10. And here would be an example of where Something said in the Old Testament is meant to be connected to what we read here. So in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10, we're going to read the following. In Isaiah 61 and verse 10, we read this. And this is looking at a future scene from the time when Isaiah is writing this book. So God will bring them out of the Babylonian captivity. They will come out of exile in Babylon and return. But in Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah writes, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." And so Isaiah portrays this picture of of God's people being covered in a garment of righteousness, being presented in a similar way as a, a bride To the bridegroom. But returning to Revelation chapter 21, we look now at verse 3. And in verse 3, we read, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Consider this thought of the dwelling of God is now with men So God is omnipresent, he has been present and is imminent in all of creation. But yet this speaks of a a different presence, a presence that is fully manifested because now sin has been done away with. And that word dwell should catch your attention because in verse three in the original language, the word dwell there is tabernacle. And think back to the Old Testament the significance of the tabernacle. It was this portable structure that reminded the people of God's presence that could come and live among them in a limited way because of their sinfulness. And now John in this vision speaks of the completion of God's promises because now he will come and he will completely tabernacle and dwell among his people. There'll be no need for any temporary structure. There'll be no interruption in that fellowship and his presence. It will be the ultimate presence of God. And we will be, as we know, a part of that scene. So this is all reminding us how that first thought of the Exodus Old and New is going to see its completion in the new heaven and the new earth. And and you can look back and you can look at, if you want Exodus 29 in verses 44 through 46, where this is what Moses promised that God's desire was, that he could come and tabernacle among his people and they would be his people and he would be their God. And that's exactly what this revelation in John and Revelation chapter 21 is pointing us to. But let's look a little further in this same chapter to go down to verse four. And in verse four, we have this reminder and assurance. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Same phrase in verse four at the end, this has passed away. This has departed. This has exiled and left, as we saw in the very beginning of verse 1. But if you listen carefully, you hear in that promise the words again of Isaiah. So if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 25 and verse 8. So if you were to spend more time in looking at Revelation 21 and 22, I'm just pulling out a few passages from Isaiah, but there are numerous references and allusions to Isaiah, as well as the book of Ezekiel. But Isaiah chapter 25 And here, Isaiah is praising God for what he will do. And you go down to verse 8. Isaiah writes this. uh, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And, And almost identical to what Revelation 21 says that he will remove every tear. So what was promised in the Old Testament, part of the old exodus is brought to completion in the new heaven and the new earth, the new exodus. By staying with Revelation 21, drop down to verses five through eight. Note in verse five, the assurance, he's going to make everything new. Uh, These words are trustworthy and true. And then in verse six, he is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and goes on and says, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life to him who is thirsty. If you were to look, you would see those same words come up in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 51, that, that the sovereign Lord is the beginning and the end of all things. And Isaiah 51, verse 1 says, all who are thirsty, come unto me and I will give you drink. And, and again, the parallel there, what was promised by Isaiah is brought to completion now in God's final stage in his redemptive plan. And then before we leave Revelation twenty-one, um, notice verses seven and eight that the new heaven and the new earth is not for everyone; it, it's only for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so he he references there certain sins in verse eight, and then you get to the end of that verse and it says their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And that phrase burning sulfur is used in the Old Testament to refer to God's judgment. So you may recall in Genesis 19, when God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, he mentions that he rains down on them burning fire and burning sulfur. In other words, it is a graphic picture of God's judgment. So although the new heaven and the new earth is the completion of God's promises, those promises are extended and belong only to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So there is both a reassuring part of this message for believers, but also a very disturbing message here for those who don't know Christ, because their judgment is certain. Now, if you kind of glanced at the rest of Revelation 21, verses basically 9 through 27, you have a more detailed description of the city of God. So remember how I said that John kind of takes you from outside the city, and then in Revelation 22, he brings you right into the heart of the city. But John's description in verses 9 through 27 are very detailed, and and they have a lot of parallels with Ezekiel's description of the temple of God. But I want to draw your attention to just verses 12 through 16 in Revelation 21. So in, in this description, now it mentions this about the city. Beginning at verse 12, we read, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out as a square as long as it was wide." Now, this is very interesting because the description here is is very amazing. Um, We don't want to get caught up so much as, well, what physically is this going to look like, but more so at the strategic and important details it mentions. So you've got a city that's structured in the shape of a cube. Which, if you remember from the Old Testament and our study of the tabernacle and the most holy place, they are also in the shape of a cube. And, and kind of what we have, see happening here is this new heaven and this new earth will be the temple of God. You're not going to have a separate temple, you're not going to have a temple within this structure. This very structure is the temple of God. And just mirrored in the the dynamics of the the shape of this, but then you probably also kind of caught your attention that it's described with having three gates on each side, so a total of twelve gates. Now twelve is one of those numbers in especially Revelation um, is is a significant number because it's a multiple of twelve, uh, and it represents this completeness. So you have both. 12 gates, then you have the names of the 12 tribes being there, as well as the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Very interesting that the relationship between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles is part of this picture. And maybe we could say that shows the completeness, the proper relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the Old Testament points ahead to what the New Testament completes and fulfills in Christ. So it's intriguing to consider that, and then the reference once again, the names of the Apostles of who? The Lamb, taking us back to the Passover, the sacrificial system, and and everything else, uh, the tone in which John even begins his Gospel, where he speaks of Jesus Christ, the one who is fully God, fully man, came to tabernacle among us. John the Baptist testimony, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of those phrases and languages would not be missed on a first century audience. And that's why sometimes we need to do a little more refreshing so we make those same connections here, as we read of this final exodus. Now let's turn our attention to the first couple verses in Revelation 22, and we're still dealing with this first point, and that is the final exodus and its completion in the New Testament here. So in Revelation 22, now we're taken to even more graphic imagery as we get closer within the city. And so you see in verses one and two, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing through or flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. Uh, And you may notice you can't but read that without thinking of imagery related to the Garden of Eden. That we saw in 21, there was no sea, but now it mentions there's a river of water of life, as clear as crystal. And and all of this is coming from the very throne of God and the Lamb, which possibly could be this reference, at least in this first verse, the river of water. Water could be a reference to the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit which would fit this scene because then what you have at the center of this new heaven and new earth is a Trinitarian picture. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All things coming from them, all things going back to them. Uh, Much like Paul says in Romans 11, everything is from God, through God, and to God. So it's it's a a God-centered picture of this new kingdom and this new heaven and earth but then you notice in verse 2 it mentions about down the middle of the street and on each side of the river stood the tree of life again think back to genesis 2 in the garden where is the tree of life it's in the middle of the garden here we're taken front and center into the middle of god's presence And once again, it speaks of the tree of life. And this tree of life, as it goes on in Revelation 22 and verses 2, is a means of healing and life-giving power. In other words, with sin being removed, there is eternal life. There is life in its deepest sense and health and blessing in the presence of God in this kingdom. So just kind of think every week when we have different physical prayer needs that we mention, there will come a day when you will not have any of that to share. There will be no need for that. We will have perfect resurrected bodies uh, in this new heaven and this new earth uh, as a completion of the work of redemption. Uh, where Christ came to save us from our sins, yes, but he came to save us from all of the effects of sin. And that last effect is its impact on our physical bodies, on on death itself, which will be reversed. And so even as we're looking at this heavenly scene, we're taken back to the garden to connect it with how the narrative began in Genesis. But looking at verses three and four, You can't help again but be brought back to the garden when in verse 3 it says, no longer will there be any curse. So the effects, the result of sin will be completely eliminated and removed. And and you notice in that when it says "As the result of that will be the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Interesting, when you think of the curse here, the result of sin that you have it mentioned in Revelation, started in Genesis, uh, you have the very last word of the Old Testament in Malachi is the word cursed. So in a sense, the Old Testament ends with this reminder, humanity stands under the judgment of God. And now we come full circle to the exodus being completed, when the curse will be removed. Uh, Again, we will be restored to our created purpose, which as you see in verse 3 there, is that his servants will serve him. Uh, And the word here for serve is, is only used in the New Testament in reference to religious service. So it could actually be used in some places service to a pagan god, but it's only dealing with service to a deity, and so here we're reminded as the people of God, we were created to serve and glorify God. Sin entered, and we were exiled from the garden, and that was prohibited. We were separated from God. Now in Christ, we're made priests and kings. We are able to serve God, but yet we still struggle with sin. And sin affects our service to God. But with all of that being removed, we will live to now our created purpose in Christ Jesus, and that is to serve him. And then in verse four, we have one further development that is not true in this present world. And that is they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, there will be complete access into the very presence of God, to see his face, to experience his presence to a degree that we cannot right now because we are still sinful creatures, the righteous in Christ Jesus. And this is where we often speak of we will no longer walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. We, we will see him as he is. And so what a, what a reminder as we think of this passage of, of the dramatic change. That yes, we belong to Christ now, but this reference here that our name will be on his, on that his name will be on our foreheads speaks of that complete identification with Christ. Uh, that That ownership, uh, that final result of what it means to be purchased. By Christ. And then in verse five, there will be no more night. There will not need, we will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Now the word lamp there, "There there'll be no need, the light of a lamp is the same reference to what we studied in the tabernacle. They needed to keep the lamps burning. as as a reminder of God's presence, his holiness. Now you come full scale to this temple now where there is no structure because God's presence is the temple. We are in the temple and there will be no need for any of those artificial means of light that, that we are used to today in our world because God himself will be the light but it's the last part of verse five that kind of leads to our second point. So not only did we look at and consider that the final Exodus is the completion of God's promises, but now the second point, the final Exodus is of present significance. Because I want you to think of this last line in verse five, as John's receiving this vision, he's told, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, the they clearly is believers, those who know Jesus Christ, who are part of this new kingdom, this new earth. But I want you to think for a moment, where is John when he's receiving this vision? He's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled because of his testimony for Christ. In other words, in every way, it doesn't look from John's perspective, you could argue, that he's in a position to reign, that that he is in a blessed state awaits him. And yet the reality this tells us is the promise of a future kingdom should affect how we live right now. That if we are certain that this is true, that the one who said this is trustworthy, that we will reign forever and ever in God's presence. And consider how that should affect us on a daily basis. That knowing this is true means that as Christians, yes, the holidays will probably look very different this year. That Thanksgiving will have to be done differently. But yet we still have much to rejoice in. That this doesn't change the significance of celebrating Christ's coming and what it means to speak of Christ as being our prophet, our priest, and a king. In other words, we live differently every day because of what we know the final Exodus is. And so you find this theme also in Paul's teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives a description there Uh, of the resurrection of the body in Christ, Uh, because there's always lots of questions. What will the resurrected body look like? And, And so Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But as you get to the end of his discussion, he moves from what that future reality will be like to how that should be a present impact in the life of the Christian. And I think this is where often sometimes in our own study of God's word, we, we fall short. We, we don't move from the understanding and interpretation to application. What's the experiential impact of this on, on you uh, you and me as believers? And so in 1 Corinthians 15, picking up at verse 55, speaking of that final exodus, Uh, Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice the first word in verse 58, therefore. So Paul's making a conclusion based on the reality of the future resurrection. And his conclusion is this. My dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul says the same thing that John says. Knowing what the final exodus is, that should be of present significance to you. It enables you to stand firm in the faith, to be confident in Christ, Uh, to rejoice always, to be thankful, and to realize the victory is ours in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism was a means of instructing people in the Christian faith written back in the 16th century. Uh, And it begins with this question. And the first question in that catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer bridges those two concepts of the exodus, because the reply would be, first, that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready to live for him. So think of the response. I I'm, I'm, I'm belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's an eternal assurance there. I belong to him. But then the next part, he assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready to live for him. There's the practical significance and emphasis. So I hope as a result of the time we spent just working our way through different Old and New Testament passages, that we see that the theme of the Exodus, old and new, is not just interesting and intriguing, it illustrates the unity of scripture, but it should be of both future significance to us, but also a present impact and significance.